Welcome to the LexisNexis Torts Law Center podcast. Toxic tort and product liability news from the pages of LexisNexis Mealy's publications and interviews and discussions with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Frank Woodson of Beasley Allen in Montgomery, Alabama on federal preemption in drug and medical device cases. LexisNexis Podcasts, voted top legal-oriented podcast in the 2008 ABA Journal Blog 100, the annual reader survey of the best websites for lawyers as chosen by the editors of the ABA Journal. The principle of federal preemption has existed for many years and has recently been looked at in a couple of cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. To discuss preemption in drug and medical device cases is Frank Woodson of Beasley, Allen, Crow, Medvin, Portis, and Miles in Montgomery, Alabama. The firm represents plaintiffs and claimants in civil litigation. Mr. Woodson joined Beasley Allen in 2001, and his practice focuses on mass torts related to pharmaceuticals. He's brought close to 20 years of litigation experience to the firm's mass torts section and is involved in the firm's COX-2 drug litigation and is a frequent speaker at seminars on preemption. Mr. Woodson, thank you for being part of this LexisNexis podcast. Let's focus on preemption a bit. First, can you talk about your understanding of the defense of federal preemption in drug and medical device cases? Well, with regard to the drug cases, preemption is what they want to argue there is that if a drug is approved by the FDA and subsequently there are lawsuits that are filed saying that you failed to adequately warn about a particular risk, then the drug companies want to be able to come into court and say, our drug and our label was approved by the FDA, and therefore we are immune from this lawsuit, and you should dismiss it. That is basically how the defense wants to use preemption in fighting litigation. One of the things about preemption is clear is that it, it's got to be mandated by Congress. Preemption is really just meant to be used in rare circumstances, actually to ensure that legal rights are protected. But what we have seen over the last eight years is a push to use preemption in an offensive manner by placing the preemption language in various regulatory rules at the Washington, D.C. level. For instance, the FDA, they came in and put some language in the FDA preamble saying that they, the FDA supports preemption. Well. That was never mandated by Congress, and the congressional history uh, is clear that they never intended to preempt state laws regarding the safety of medications. Hence, that's why you've always seen litigation over injuries and deaths when it comes to uh, medications. Now, in the medical field, Congress has also made it clear that in certain circumstances, device, medical device litigation is preempted. But to be able to uh, get yourself the availability of that preemption, the manufacturer of a certain device has to go through certain procedures in getting the uh, product approved. And then if you do that, you get preemption. In many cases where you've seen litigations over the last several years involving devices like soles or hips and knees, some people question, well, how are they getting around preemption? Well, because those manufacturers did not go through the congressionally mandated process to be entitled to preemption. And there have been some notable cases in both the drug and medical device areas, correct? That is correct. I mean, earlier this year, you know, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision uh, called Regal, 
and where they uh, preempted a, a medical device case. Uh, and you know, people ask us, well, how does that affect some of your ongoing litigation? For instance, some shoulder pain pump medication uh, or devices that I'm working on now, and these shoulder pain pump devices didn't go through the process to obtain preemption, so we're really not concerned about that. And uh, there is an upcoming decision that's related to uh, preemption in drug cases, and that is the Wyeth versus Levine case. That is the U.S. Supreme Court case that was argued uh, last fall, and we think the court will be issuing a decision sometime this spring on that case. And we'll see what happens with that and whether or not the current administration or Congress would have, you know, any pushback if they were to come in and, and rule that there can be no litigation over any cases if the product was approved by the FDA. As someone with extensive experience in drug product liability litigation, can you talk about the differences between filing new cases with federal and or state courts, and what advice can you offer other attorneys who have to decide between the two? Well, as far as the legal theories in those courts, they are basically going to be the same. And we have litigated drug cases in federal and state court for years. And what you're basically going to see those cases focus on is the theory of failure to warn. You will also see in the complaints uh, a product defect claim, but for the most part, you will see us arguing and using experts to say that the company failed to adequately warn about a particular risk of that drug, whether it be like in Vox, where uh, the plaintiffs would argue that Merck failed to adequately warn about the risk of heart attacks, or in Baycall, where the argument was that Bayer failed to adequately warn about the risk of rhabdomyolysis. And that was an interesting case simply from the standpoint of there was a warning of rhabdomyolysis in the Baycall label. But in the discovery process, we found out that as compared to the other cholesterol-lowering medications in that same family of drugs, this drug was causing it at 20 to 80 times the rate, which still gave rise to the failure to adequately warn claim. Now, whether you file it in state or federal court, those are basically going to be your theories of liability. Now, we like to see cases filed, you know, all over the country. And in federal court, what you'll typically see, if there are a lot of cases filed, is an MDL formed at some point where all of the federal cases will get consolidated. Now, sometimes that's, that's good because that can get litigation going. You've got coordinated discovery and, and stuff like that. And there, I think there are some disadvantages to that because depending on who you get or how that goes, it can slow up the litigation. And I think the defendants may like all the litigation to be coordinated in one court, and that slows it up for them. What we like to see is some state court litigation, for instance, like in Vox. Uh, you had an MDL, but you had a very strong litigation going on in New Jersey. And when you have the defendant having to face different courts, different judges, and uh, different ways to litigate, that puts a little more added pressure on them from a plaintiff's perspective. So there are advantages of consolidation in the MDL, but there are major advantages, we think, in having many cases across the country that remain in state court. And so it's just not all in one place, and the different courts can push along at different speeds. Should attorneys allege federal, state, or both types of causes of action? Well, 
you're not really going to see, speaking about causes of action, different yeah. causes of action. The causes of action are going to be failure to warn, uh, basically, and or product defect. And that's not going to make any difference between whether or not you're in state or federal court. I'd like to turn to generic drugs for a second. Do you think state causes of action for failure to warn of the dangers of a drug should be allowed against the manufacturers of a generic drug? Certainly, because it's, it's going to be the same thing. The generic manufacturers like to make the statement that we're not allowed to change our label. We have to use the same label as the originator of the drug. And that is clearly a misstatement of the law. Originally, when they get approval of their generic medication, they have to start from ground zero with the approved label of the originator. But it is absolutely clear from regulations that they can amend their warning label to make it consistent with their knowledge. They are the manufacturer of that drug. And if the manufacturer of a generic or the original drug becomes aware of a risk of that medication, they have the obligation and duty to the public to amend their label to warn about that. And that is the only consistent way to recognize this label change. I mean, the FDA says that, that they can do that. The manufacturers like to try to uh, skew those regulations, but that is just a misstatement of the law when uh, they make that argument. What effect, if any, do you think the Obama administration is going to have on preemption in drug and medical device cases? Well, it's going to be interesting to see, and we, you may not see anything real early. I mean, obviously that administration has their hands full with the economy right now, uh, and they're going to have to uh, put their attention to that first. Now, if we see some adverse ruling in the Wyeth versus Levine case, then I think you may see some uh, quicker movement uh, necessitated because of an adverse decision. I think that with the new numbers in uh, the Senate and the new numbers uh, in the House, along with the uh, new administration, that they're going to want to correct some of the weaknesses that they have seen at the FDA over the last several years. I was going to ask what uh, you think the effect might be on the FDA. Well, I think it's going to change dramatically. As recently in the, as three weeks ago, uh, there was a letter written by eight or nine scientists at the FDA to President Obama advising him of, about pressures that they've been under over the last uh, several years to approve drugs, to turn a blind eye to risk of drugs, and just to, to push drugs through the system for the benefit of the manufacturers and not looking necessarily at all the safety risks, risk, which would is what you got to do to protect uh, the patients. So there is plenty of evidence out there that uh, during the last eight years that it's become more of a politicized organization, uh, starting back when a, a drug manufacturer attorney was appointed as their general counsel. And when that happened, that is exactly when the preemption language was placed in the preamble at the FDA. So unfortunately, you, you've had people in there like that instead of real experts. You've, you, we've put the foxes in charge of our hen houses, and, uh, and we've got to correct those problems up there because the FDA has been weakened. Uh, you know, one of the great scientists up there is David Graham, and he has almost been involved in all the drug recalls that people listening to this would be familiar with, from back to FinFin to Propulsid to Reslin 
to Baycol, to Vioxx, and he saw all those early on, but he you know, was not listened to by his superiors at the FDA. And I'm hoping that you know, under the current administration, you know, they're going to they have him stuck way back in the back in a, a back room, not allowing him to do a whole lot nowadays. And somebody like that needs to be uh, up there working on these medications in the in the safety and looking at those issues so they can accomplish really what that FDA is supposed to be doing. Does the FDA sufficiently protect consumers? Uh, you know, when we go to these trials. You know, we hear that from the defense lawyers a lot, that the FDA is the gold standard in the world. And I like to think that that probably used to be true. One of my former law partners here, his father worked for the FDA, and when he worked there, he actually wore a badge, and he felt like he was a, you know, drug cop. Like a policeman. That's exactly right. I'm here to police, I'm here to protect the public, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. But what have we seen in the last, uh, you know, eight years? Well, you know, I can point to an internal investigation that the FDA did. I can point to the uh, GAO, which is the General Accounting Office, which is the uh, investigative arm of Congress. And over the last three years, both of those groups have issued reports that took them over a year to uh, accomplish that basically said the FDA is not doing their job and that they are not adequately equipped to do their job any longer. They don't have the resources. They don't have the necessary scientists. And, uh, you know, there was mention of too much politics going on uh, over at the FDA. So, you know, and, and as recently, like we talked about earlier, you know, we have seen the scientists at the FDA write the letter to Obama that we discussed earlier requesting an investigation of certain FDA officials about what's going on over there enforcing approval of drugs and turning a blind eye to safety risk. So you don't have to ask a plaintiff's lawyer, which I am, whether or not they can do it. An FDA uh, internal investigation and the investigative arm of Congress both concluded that uh, over the last three years. We talked about the possibility of a decision in the Levine case before the U.S. Supreme Court sometime in the spring of 2009. What will the impact of a decision in that case be, say, in the next 6 to 12 months? Well, immediately, if, if the decision is that there is preemption, then there's you know obviously going to be uh, motions being filed and a lot of uh, pending cases. And I think, on the other hand, that you would see a mad dash to Washington by those of us on on the consumer and patient side of the fence to have Congress correct that decision. And I, I don't think the administration is going to uh, uh, fight that. I mean, if Congress steps up to the plate and says, you know, we, we're not going to have preemption, we never passed preemption. It has to be mandated. Uh, what happened, where this preemption has come from was years ago when the FDA had to go through their rulemaking process in the early 2000s. They they come up with their new regulations and rules to run their agency. And those have to be published. And then it has to be several hearings in front of the public. The public can come and ask questions about it and it has to be vetted, you know, by those who are interested. Uh, that was done in the early 2000s, back, I believe, in 2001. 
the preamble language regarding preemption was placed in it a year to a year and a half after all of that took place. Unfortunately, you've had certain federal judges see that preamble and rule that, oh, well, the FDA supports preemption, so so do I. But the fact is, is that that rule was just typed up and stuck in there. It was never in the original rules when they were uh, redrafted, and it was never put up for uh, public debate. They did not follow the process that you have to have. And certainly Congress never issued any rulings or laws stating that we approve preemption. When you see it in the one occasion regarding the FDA on certain types of devices, they were clear. So obviously they will grant preemption when it is clear, and if it's not clear, it does not exist. The scary part about preemption, uh, it doesn't just relate to what I do in drug litigation. That same type of language was placed across many agencies uh, at the federal government level to you know, just protect big business and, um, and to make them immune from any type of litigation or, or responsibility for their acts or actions. And part of that is what's led us to, I think, our current economic crisis, you know, failure to regulate uh, some of these businesses. Why else do you think parties should be able to bring state law actions for negligence and drug product liability types of claims when federal law already addresses drug safety matters? Federal law does address drug safety matters, but Congress did not include any preemption language in any of the rules or regulations addressing drug the drug approval process. And when Congress fails to grant them preemption, then the U.S. Constitution provides our citizens to a right to trial by jury to address any of their civil disputes, which would include an injury or death caused to a loved one from a drug. And my belief is that our civil jury system uh, acts like a mini-legislature. And that mini-legislature are not influenced by lobbyists, and they cannot be bought. And hopefully they're going to use common sense and justice in mind. And and they act as an additional safeguard against dangerous drugs or devices and is a complement to what our government put in place with the FDA. And, and people in this country have that right because Congress never has preempted the field of drug litigation. Mr. Woodson, I'd like to thank you for your views and your thoughts on preemption and your time in being part of this LexisNexis podcast. Frank Woodson of Beasley Allen in Montgomery, Alabama. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. This has been the LexisNexis Torts Law Center podcast. Copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions.